Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the magic of mindfulness, how to find your sacred sweet spot. My first guests are Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh and Dr. Seth Gillahan. Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh is a clinical psychologist and an expert in the fields of behavior change and long-term health, a mindfulness specialist and creator of the FIT method, he works internationally with clients on their mindset, exercise, and nutrition. Dr. Gillahan is a licensed psychologist and clinical assistant professor of psychology in the psychiatry department at the University of Pennsylvania. He divides his professional time between psychotherapy practice, writing books, and blog posts, and hosting conversations on living more fully for the Think, Act, Be podcast. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on today's show. This is an absolutely beautiful book that speaks to my heart. Oh, thank you for having us here. Thank you for saying that, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I opened the book and, and I was reading certain passages and I was immediately taken by the day-to-day invitation that there was a, there's a beautiful quote there's an inspirational passage and then an invitation for action and practice of the theme of the day. But what I'm interested in really asking you both about is the importance of taking responsibility for ourselves in our lives and how we can use material like this to support our happiness, our well-being and our life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Well, I think often what we do in life is that we give away our power. And we give away our power because we often look to the external world to have provided a, a reasoning or um, responsibility for the way that we feel. And whilst on the one hand, I think it's, it's um, it, you know, it's very clear that what happens around us can have an effect on us. I like what you're saying about taking that personal responsibility and actually beginning to appreciate that. There's so much that is outside of our control. We can't control the pandemic, the lockdown, uh, politics, the weather, other people. But all we can begin to control is the perspective we take and the actions that we make. And so I think this book is really an invitation to help you to understand your perspective more so that you, you can begin to shift it in a way that's constructive and also begin to lean into any negative emotions you might feel, and I say negative with inverted commas, um, and still take action. Seth? Yeah, I, I think one of the most useful things about the, the process of writing this book was that daily reminder that there were mm-hmm. things within our power 
that we could do because you know there were there were so many things that were happening that year, the year that Ari and I were writing this together, and so many of them were outside of our control. And it was easy. I mean, I you know, I'm a psychologist. I I treat people you know all the time, inviting them to to claim the power that they have in their lives for their own well-being. But it's so easy for any of us, including myself, to exactly as Ari was saying, to give up that power. And so just this this little reminder that there's something that we can do. That if I'm feeling bummed out, that that I have a choice in that. I don't have to just let that kind of kind of ride over me that I have a say in in how I respond and and really I guess that's an idea that goes back at least to the Stoics this this principle that each of us is ultimately responsible for our own well-being and to me this speaks to the concept of self-mastery and it differs from psychotherapy in the way that psychotherapy really sp- speaks to how we feel and maybe reconciling with things that have happened to us. But what you're both talking about is almost like a reclamation of self. Mm. Mm. I think so. And I think it begins with even understanding what the self is. Yeah. Because a lot of the time, the biggest illusion is that we become fused with our thoughts we have a thought and we think that we are that thought that it's automatically true that it's the the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and that it will happen or it it means that it is necessarily true and because of that we then experience emotions and we believe that we are our emotions so to speak and we become almost inflamed with that emotion and then we often act out of it And whenever we feel emotion, we even know from a a neuroscience point of view that our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that's responsible for judgment, decision making, impulse control, planning, it goes offline Mm. and we often make terrible decisions. And so whenever you can begin to, the biggest question that guided me in my 20s was, who am I And, and even what is I? And it sounds almost metaphysical or philosophical, but I think it's an important question and the realization I came to is that I am the observer of my thoughts. I have thoughts, but that's not who I am because my mind comes up with them all the time (laughs) and I can see my and experience my emotions, but my emotions don't define me. And when you are able to create that space or that distance and that perspective, you can still experience the whole plethora of emotions that we go through in life and the vicissitudes of life, but in such a way that deep down, there's still that stillness of self, there's still that clarity of self, and there's still that groundedness. And in a way, we become unshakable. And I love what you said, Lisa, about reclamation, because I think that that really resonated with, for me, with what I experienced so many times throughout the year, because I, I think it wasn't really until that year that I fully recognized how easily we give up our happiness, how we just let it go. Yeah. We sort of, we sacrifice it. Someone does something and then it's like, oh, great. Now I can't be happy. Now they piss me off. And that's just, now I'm stuck in this. And realizing like, wow, I can reclaim that. I can take that back for myself and and ultimately decide whether or not I'm going to let that ruin the rest of my day or ruin my relationship with this person or not. 
It's yeah. it's funny as you were speaking, Seth. It made me think of something that I that I say to clients. I say to my own children. I'm like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Mm-hmm. You know, and that always gets a big chuckle whenever I ask yeah. the question. And you know, the knee jerk reaction is, well, both. My gosh, come on, who are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's uh, I think it's spot on because we often subconsciously create conditions necessary for us to feel happy. And these are these are mental constructs that we've actually created. They don't exist in reality. Yeah. But we've almost decided I can only be happy if conditional. I will only yeah, conditionally if the happy. Happens, yeah. I will only be happy when and we actually often prevent ourselves from experiencing the joy in the present moment because we're insisting that the external reality conforms with our internal model of what a happy life should look like. And talk a little bit about the book, you know, to further address that you, the two of you went on a journey together in the co-creation of this book. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, what was the hook? What, what brought you to the place of creating a mindful year? What, what was the catalyst? I think it, it went as far back as when Ari and I first knew each other. And, and I think both were, we're really having our eyes open to what mindfulness was back, I guess, a decade or, or more ago. And then, and then Aria, we, so we met in, in the States when Aria was visiting as a student and I was a professor. And then he went back to England and we didn't see each other again until his wedding uh, mm. a few years later. And, and at that, during that weekend, we just experienced such uh, closeness with each other and with you know the people that we that we loved and and others who were there, and we asked you know as we as we thought about it afterwards, we asked ourselves you know is there a way to, I mean, do we have to wait until we have this you know this amazing wedding weekend type of event before we experience this or you know these these relatively infrequent episodes when everything seems just right or is it possible to import some of that into the rest of our lives? And so we continued to think about that together and then decided that you know, working in really in tandem with each other and encouraging each other to come back to the things that we hold most dear every day, that that could be a kind of intentional practice that would that could foster we, we can't force those types of experiences of connection and, and meaning and finding the sacred, but we can at least make ourselves available to receive them. We're going to take a break, but before we go, there's a beautiful passage from your book, A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection connection and the Sacred in Everyday Life. And I would love for you to read it for our listeners before mm-hmm. we take the pause. This is it, Thich Nhat Hanh. We all have ideas about what will bring us happiness. I remember writing to Santa one Christmas for a Star Wars lightsaber. I knew that if I had a lightsaber, I would be content forever. I was pretty happy, though I wouldn't say I attained a transcendental state of bliss when I received a torch or a flashlight instead. It was big and relatively powerful, so it looked a little like a lightsaber when all the lights were off. It didn't cut through objects, though, which was probably for the best, since I was seven at the time, and the living room furniture might not have lasted long. 
As the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh writes, this is it. This is it, my friends. No more, no less. This is life in all her beauty and glory. We'll all have sparkling moments and stinky moments, and both will pass. The only thing constant is change. Our mantle, then, is to flow with the world and see the joy, beauty, and meaning in each moment. Life has offered us this gift. All we have to do is receive it. Invitation. Today, embrace the gift of life. Whatever reality brings to your doorstep, try to see the beauty, joy, and meaning that are here. This is it. Mm. So beautiful and so soothing to me. We're going to take a break to learn more about the work of Dr. Arya Campbell-Danesh and Dr. Seth J. Gillahan. Please visit www.dr-arya.com and Dr. Seth Gillahan at sethgillahan.com. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Just a second here. Before we pause, I want to show some love for today's sponsor, Grove Collaborative, delivering a greener clean to keep your home and our world spotless with earth-friendly cleaning essentials. For years, I've been a subscriber to Grove Collaborative for all my eco-friendly household needs. Healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products do work, and the good ones are even more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? That's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your doorstep. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and our world. With Grove, it's a one-stop shop for all your natural goods. This saves time, money, and hassle. Right now, I'm savoring the delicious smell of autumn and bringing that nature-filled aromatherapeutic scent into my homekeeping routine with Mrs. Meyer's limited edition Acorn Spice products. Join me and more than 2 million households who trust Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Shipping is fast and free on your first order. Choosing products that are better for you and the planet has never been easier. For a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.com slash happiness, you will get to choose a free starter set with your first order. Go to grove.com slash happiness to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.com slash happiness. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Don't you just love that sound? Who 
says money can't buy a little happiness? It's the sound of a new sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that grows with you. Shopify will help you start, run, and grow your business from anywhere in the world. Shopify gives entrepreneurs like me customizable resources to make ideas into things that sell and the extensive tools to help manage the back end of the business. Shopify is a portal to building online sales and bringing new products to market possible. One of the things I love most about Shopify is the ability to instantly accept all forms of payment. More than 10 years ago, I started this podcast to establish professional street cred and build a library of top-notch inspirational content in my area of expertise. Today, Harvesting Happiness remains the same passion project, but now it's a full-time business with lots to manage. Shopify powers more than 1.7 entrepreneurs like me, from first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, a small business owner is making their first sale with Shopify. Gain knowledge and confidence with Shopify as your commerce partner to help you find customers, drive sales, and oversee your day-to-day. And with 24-7 support, you're never alone. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success This is Possibility Powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash happiness, all lowercase for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash happiness right now. Shopify.com slash happiness. Now let's get back to the conversation. And we're back. Talking about the magic of mindfulness, find your sacred sweet spot. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest today. And I don't know if you, like me, experienced that sacred moment at the end of the last segment, but Aria and Seth, thank you for reading a passage from the book about this is it, because that speaks to me very, very Mm -hmm. strongly. Another area that the two of you align and certainly align with my thinking is the imperative of service in our lives. And how being in service or of use to others with our gifts ultimately makes us more happy and content. Absolutely. I think um, we all act out of self-interest. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And we can give ourselves the pleasure of pleasing ourselves and we can give ourselves the pleasure of pleasing others. Now, on the one hand, I think that's a great leveler because then we can see that we're all acting out of self-interest and and no one person is any more worthy or any better or um or any more than another person but we can also see that we have a choice and we can our actions can improve one life or they can improve many and i think whenever definitely on a personal level whenever i tap into into that idea of service and of connecting with something bigger or greater or a cause which is important to me or a message that is valuable to me, then there's a deeper fulfillment and joy which comes with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would wholly wholeheartedly agree with that, that tapping into something larger than ourselves. So I think it is it is easy to kind of at least 
for me to get caught up in kind of the Seth Gillahan show. And <laughs> I love that show, by the way. Well, yeah, I have an enthusiastic audience of one. Thank you, Aria. <laughs> uh, your dues are, are due, by the way. Um, but but when I can when I can broaden out from that and and recognize that I am that I am a part of of something bigger then it's it's more inspiring on the one hand and and also there's less pressure it's not just about this kind of personal success or 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 not failing and disappointing uh, my my family and others but but it's about yeah, contributing in some way and that was i mean during during the year of our writing i was as as readers would know i was quite ill at times and it was easy to be especially self-focused and even at those times Finding ways to get outside myself, I think, was a, a huge part of beginning to heal. Mm. The getting outside of oneself. It's a theme. I have found that to be a theme in my life. Listeners that do follow the show know that I, I like to call myself a reformed, depressed person. <laughs> that mm. I have had, um, I have battled depression in my early life. And part of my recovery or rebounding was the experience of what we're talking about, of the imperative of service, that mm. that, that was the ultimate antidepressant. Mm. Mm. It's true, because a lot of the time, I think what can happen is when we become caught up in our own emotions and we're fused with it, we're, we're almost, we can become self-absorbed and, and self-preoccupied with our own pain. And actually that can fuel those feelings. But if we can find a way of actually connecting with others, even through our human experience or through our suffering and sharing our truth and, and creating a space where there's room for another truth, and maybe in some way they might be linked, I think it can then bring a, se a sense of unity and a sense of compassion because, because you're also driven to try and help the suffering of other people as well mm -hmm. and like you're saying it can take you out of yourself and and provide comfort in in what can be a very lonely world if we fall into that trap of just looking inwards yeah it is comforting to know that we can actually be of service even when we're not a hundred percent ourselves and in the and being being stuck i mean when i was so self-focused preoccupied with with my own symptoms and and suffering it was so boring <laughs> it can it be can so it <laughs> boring after a while yeah and i remember i came across this prayer on that time something like lord free me from care for myself or something and not not that we should stop caring for ourselves but but this constant preoccupation and it was so liberating to to realize i could let go of some of that mm -hmm. And then I think there's that distinction that Seth made. It's often that what we become preoccupied with ourselves isn't even serving us mm -hmm. because we're led by the mind and the mind has a negativity bias, which yes. it's evolved with. And so we get caught up in that and that ruminative cycle of focusing on what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. And we're really consumed by the pain and we get we just follow this narrative, which might not even be true. Whereas we can still self-focus and self-reflection and self-contemplation and self-observation 
are wonderful things in, in my book. And self-care is crucial. And I think people, though, often overlook that part. And it's also giving yourself permission to know that it's okay that I look after myself. It's okay that I take this time to do exercise or go for a walk or to have a meal, even if I have other responsibilities. Because something I come out through a lot of my work is particularly females who feel this huge pressure to be a perfect mum and to be a perfect partner and have a career. And they're often focusing on so many other people that their needs get overlooked. But it's only whenever you really can love yourself and heal yourself and fuel yourself, are you then able to give even more in the future. And, and that is a salve, you know, the application of love to the places that hurt is in mm. of itself such strong medicine. And, and many of us um, are not taught to do that because if if we do that we're perceived as somehow selfish or egotistical yeah. or self-absorbed yeah yeah completely you hear all the time the kids have to come first or you need to put your partner first and it's true that we need to i think it's important that we you know expand our sphere to include other people but that doesn't mean neglecting who we are yeah i think and, and both of you, I think, are touching on such a, a crucial balance, which is, and you often hear this, this it's kind of become a cliche now, put your own oxygen mask on first, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Which, but, but then there's, there has to be the, the follow-up, which is, in, you know, and then attend to others' oxygen yeah. masks. And what I was doing, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I need to stop putting on my oxygen mask. It's like, I was just focusing on it. Like, oh, is it, is it on straight? Is it working right? It's not, I'm not sure it's exactly right. Like I was just focusing on what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Like what's, what's causing this? How can I get better? Instead of just saying like, all right, let me take care of myself the best I can. And then however, what, whatever resources I have that day, let me offer them to others as best I'm able. Mm. Yeah. And, and to take that analogy further, some people don't even focus on the math. They just focus on the fact that the plane's going down. And it's like, oh my goodness, and the plane's going down and people are screaming and this means I'm going to die. And if I die, then it means my, you know, children are going to have a parent and and so on and so forth. And we forget, Mm. yeah, to shift that focus. The quantum leapers amongst us. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and going back to the book and the practices or the invitations in your book, A Mindful Year, really remind us to come back to these these simple acts of being, you know, which is Mm -hmm. very much a practice because it's not taught to us to Mm -hmm. just be. We're taught to do. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, what differentiates us from other species is our ability to have what in science they call stimulus-independent thought. We can think about uh, areas of our lives that are not occurring in this moment. And that's offered a huge evolutionary advantage and we're able to plan and think ahead and reflect on the past and, and learn from it. And it's wonderful from a survival point of view. And we, we've seen through the data that on average, people's mind wanders about 48% of the time, which is remarkable when you think about it. About nearly half the time, we're thinking about something other than we're doing. So wonderful from a survival point of view. From a happiness point of view, terrible. Because yeah. we also know from the data that whenever our mind is wandering, even wandering from a task which isn't pleasant, we're less happy than when we're engaged in the task. 
And I think the simplest truth is we can only ever experience one moment at a time. And when we can tap back into that, and like you're saying, it's a practice. Our mind is built to be able to drift off and go to other places. But if we can just continually bring it back as much as possible, we'll be a lot more present when we're with our children having dinner, when we're at work and focusing on a meeting, when we're going for a walk and taking in nature. We're nearly out of time, but a thought popped into my mind as you were talking about, you know, experiencing the moment is if we're able to fully be and embrace and focus and experience one moment and we have satisfaction of, of that one moment, the invitation is then to have another moment and another and another and another. And pretty soon we stitch together this tapestry of really satisfying and beautiful and happy periods of time. Yeah, I like how you describe that, Lisa, that this is not a once and for all type of thing. It is a continuous return to this and then to this and then to this. Yeah. And this is good. And to quote Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, in that passage, this is it. This, this is actually it. To learn more about my guests today, Dr. Arya Campbell Dinesh and Dr. Seth J. Gillahan, please visit their websites, www.dr-arya.com and sethgillahan.com. The book we've been speaking of, which can be purchased on either one of their websites or wherever you purchase your books, is A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection and the Sacred in Everyday Life. Guys, thanks for sharing a bit of your sacred with me today and our listeners. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Just a minute. Before we pause, I want to remind you about my harmless secret obsession. As a regular listener of the show, you know how I love to amuse myself with Best Fiends, my favorite casual mobile game. What I love most is that Best Fiends is an action-packed adventure and a brain-boosting puzzle game all rolled into one that challenges my mind in new ways. Not to brag or anything, but I'm strategizing and conquering my way towards level 5,200 and three and counting. Best Fiends is my go-to digital play pal, and I'm happily hooked. And if you're anything like me, you will be too. The fun never ends at Best Fiends because there are constant updates and always something new to explore. There's no game over with thousands of puzzle levels. You'll never run out of goals to achieve. I love the cute little collectible characters like my newest favorite, Jester Jean, the funny juggling centipede. Need a little digital distraction? Stress less and play more. Come join me for a squeaky clean good time. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're going to carry on about the magic of mindfulness. Find your sacred sweet spot. My next guest is Rebecca Pacheco. She is the author of the book, Still Life and Do Your Own Thing. 
Do Your Own Thing was named one of the top 10 yoga and meditation books Every Yogi Needs by Yoga Journal, and it's used in teacher trainings across the United States. A yogi and meditator since her teens, Rebecca studied English literature at the University of Richmond. She now lives in Boston with her family, where she enjoys stillness and movement in equal measure. The book we're talking about today is Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Lisa. I am delighted to be with you. I am too. I'm always happy to talk about what it means to live mindfully. You know, we hear these buzzwords all the time, be more mindful, you should meditate, it's good for you. And what I glean from your work is you are teaching us to be mindful in our everyday lives. That's the idea. That's the hope for sure. You're absolutely right. The word has become very buzzy. And I even tell a funny story early on in the book about having a conversation with a friend. And she said, what about, could you use a different word? I feel like mindfulness has has been taken or something (laughs) like that. And, And so, you know, if that word doesn't work for you, maybe you insert intentional or you know, presence. It doesn't, it doesn't matter so much. It's how it feels in your life. Certainly, I like to honor the traditions from which mindfulness came and meditation largely came. I have a ton of respect for the pioneers of the movement, you know, here in the West, John Kabat-Zinn being uh, the biggest influence on me personally and, and on the field um, and how, you know, he and that movement have defined mindfulness. But you're right, it really comes down to how it works for you in your day to day life. It it doesn't matter so much, you know, what the definition is, or how it looks, or where you do it, or for how long it matters, you know, does it work? And how does it feel in your life? John Kabat-Zinn has a beautiful definition of mindfulness. And I would love for you to share it with the listeners, because it just sort of nails it. He does. He does. And, you know, as I mentioned, there are a lot of ways we can think about mindfulness, but largely people agree on this one definition, and it is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally to the present moment. Beautiful. And so you can do that seated in meditation, but you can also do that, you know, uh, working in the garden or chopping carrots for soup or sitting and having a, a cup of tea. Um, it doesn't have to be a formal practice. And I think that is the greatest gift of mindfulness when we can come to that space of observance and, and being in our everyday activities that it doesn't necessarily require, you know, and you write about this in, in your book, still life, the myths and magic of mindful living that if it's, you know, if it's not 20 minutes, it, it doesn't count. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, yes, that was one of the myths that, that, you know, kept me from the magic of mindfulness for a long time. I, I kept trying for you know, that all or none mentality. And it really was a limiting factor. And and it was at the point when I released some of those expectations and started to investigate those myths myself, that I really started to appreciate what the practice could do for me. Um, so some days, even now, my today, my practice was 20 minutes, but sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's a yoga practice. Sometimes 
it's a walk and I live near an arboretum and I go and I just walk and breathe and enjoy the, the trees and being in nature. And um, so it can really take many different shapes. For me, my experience of mindfulness um, relates very closely to flow theory, you know, which is, yeah. you know, originated in the 60s, Mahalia Csikszentmihalyi, Mike Csikszentmihalyi, who actually is one of the pioneers of positive psychology. You know, he talked about that flow state where you're in rapture, right? And in that state, there's yeah. no awareness of time. Right. You're absorbed in the moment, in what you're doing. You know, I work with a, a lot of athletes Right now, as we're recording this, the Olympics are taking place and I have a couple friends that are there either coaching or commentating and friends who are former athletes and they would describe it as being in the zone, yeah. right? But I think even like you, your mother, I'm a, I'm a relatively new mother. I have a, a small child. Well, she's in preschool now. And if you think about what how kids thrive and just sort of like what they need from you as a parent, the first thing above all other things is pay attention, right? Is be here with me on the floor with the Legos. (laughs) And that's all that matters. Yeah. In that moment. Right. And it, so it's not glamorous. You know, there are times where it's very unglamorous and, and some of this stuff, uh, you know, we, we need to dress it up and maybe give it rituals or give it, you know, powerful language. But really what it boils down to is, is paying attention, is being present for your life as it's happening, for being, you know, to use your words and, and your area of expertise in that flow state of being immersed in the here and now. And it can be done in, in a myriad of ways, right? It's not necessarily, you know, sitting in lotus position, contemplating the navel, which we've talked about before. I mean, there are yep. beautiful ways to create mindful. It's a lot on the knees. It is, especially as we age, you know, the, <laughs> the knees, oy, the knees. But but here's the thing, and and you write about this as well, is that as we change, as our lives progress, the mindfulness practice itself may shift and change. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. It absolutely must shift and change, I think. So I think the most powerful approach is, is that two-prong approach of having ideally some formal meditation practice if you can. You don't necessarily have to sit in lotus, um, but maybe it's, you know, you lie down and before you go to sleep at night, you do a little breath work and a little meditation. And then uh, mindfulness in daily life, to your point about paying attention to the moment as it's happening as best we can, whenever we can. And, you know, that includes being in relationship with other people, mindful listening as we're having a conversation. Yeah. And so I think the beauty of having those two tools, you know, the formal practice and then this state of being that you can access anytime is that they are with you as you age, as life takes hold. I mean, we are, you know, ideally at the disembarkation point of this pandemic. Uh, we've all been through something that, that none of us could have seen coming. And so it's important to have a practice that is adaptable, that that works with you as, you know, your life changes. Do you have time for a quick story? I'll tell you a quick story that I relay in the book. I have all the time for a story, always. <laughs> You know, for instance, I was a very devout daily meditator for years. It was 
crucial to my daily operation. I really needed it. It felt like this great safety net, this, uh, you know, force field even in my life. And then I had a, a daughter, I had a baby. And maybe you can guess what happened after I had it. <laughs> Once I had it, <laughs> I could not meditate. I mean, they're just we were in survival mode. Uh, we were in sleep deprivation mode. And so my beautiful daily precious meditation practice uh, without fail for years and years and years fell away. And at first, I was shocked by how utterly okay that was. It was as though I had built as I said, a safety net for myself, or you can think of it as like a savings account where you, I was depositing each day with this practice into this reserve of peacefulness, this reserve of steadiness for the time when I needed it, right? Like I needed to pay absolute crucial attention to this new baby. I was, you know, uh, sustaining life. Um, and so that was okay. My meditation practice was completely obliterated. Um, and then at a certain point, I really missed it. And I, and I needed something. And I was so sleep deprived that anytime I would sit down to meditate, I would, I would nod off. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there myself. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, you know, to be utterly frank, I was breastfeeding. And, um, you know, that requires a lot of sitting. And I didn't want to sit anymore. I was sitting for hours and hours a day. Um, infants eat like 10 times a day. So I didn't want to sit down anymore. So I was out for a walk with my new family. At that point, I had my daughter strapped to my chest in the little, you know, carrier. And we came upon a little park in our neighborhood, which coincidentally, we'd never been in. It was set back from the street just enough that it looked semi private, but it wasn't. It was just set back. It's a beautiful September day in New England. And my husband had a really nice egg sandwich that he wanted to eat. So he sat down and he ate the sandwich. And I walked with the baby. And it was a little, there was a little circular path. And it was almost like a mandala, like just a little, or a little meditation labyrinth. And I just walked. I did walking meditation, completely improvised. And it was from that point on that I came home to my practice, right? So yeah. for the first few months, it just looked like real life. And then at the point when I really needed to be a bit more structured with it, I, I came back by way of walking meditation. And it's going to evolve many times again, you know, in the pandemic, one of my Buddhist friends and I were talking and, and she joked that it's like the entire world is on a meditation retreat that they didn't sign up for. <laughs> That's true. You know, because we were all now quarantined <laughs> in our own minds, in our own spaces with far fewer escape routes than, than we previously had. You know, we, we, we had far fewer distractions at our access, at our fingertips. And um, there's something to be learned from each chapter of life. And ideally, you have tools like mindfulness, like meditation, uh, what, however that looks for you that you can take with you on the journey. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with my guest today, Rebecca Pacheco. She is the author of Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living. To learn more, please visit www.stilllifebook.com, on Twitter at OMGAL, on Facebook, OMGAL blog, and on Instagram at OMGAL. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. 
Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest today, Rebecca Pacheco, we're talking about the magic of mindfulness. Find your sacred sweet spot. Let's get back to it. So Rebecca, on the break, you and I were talking about these um, curiously different mindfulness practices that we've uh, <laughs> cultivated, particularly, we yes. Yes, yes. particularly during the pandemic. So you and I should share a couple of our own. You go first. Well, one, you know, we were talking a little bit about finding stillness through movement. And I have to say boxing was a huge mindfulness lesson for me. I think learning anything new can can make us much more intensely focused on the moment. And you had one that I, that I absolutely love. Oh, for me, as of last week, have taken up archery. Which is a perfect metaphor yeah. because you focus quite literally on your target. I, I think that is super cool. What made you, do you mind me asking, what made you take up archery? Well, when I was a kid, I went to sleepaway camp and I did archery and I absolutely loved it. And my fiance said, you know, I want to take you for a birthday present. I was thinking, let's go get you a bow and arrow because you want, I know you want to do archery again. So he took me, it was kind of a romantic birthday thing, oh, you know? Wow. That's it, really sweet. It was great. And and what I love about archery as a mature adult most of the time is the, <laughs> is the breathing that it, yes. it, it forces yes. that that slow, rhythmic breath. And and this is, you know, it may sound trivial, um, but it's just a fact of life these days. Anything with your hands and both hands where you physically cannot be holding a phone. I think is really valuable. Yes. And you, know, like you absolutely cannot have your phone nearby. You cannot be distracted by the internet surfing. I'm not a great surfer. My husband is a, a skilled surfer. And <laughs> when I, when I've surfed, you know, in my novice manner, I'm just, I'm always bowled over by how beautiful it is to just be in the water for hours sometimes without being connected you know, to the internet. And it doesn't matter if you can't stand up, does it? <laughs> Just make- No, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> but you and I share an Olympic sport of mindfulness. We do. We are world-class, I think. World-class. And a drum roll, you can reveal what that is. Uh, we are in peak condition, athletes at this skill, laundry. Yes, laundry. ma'am. <laughs> I, you know, it never stops. 
And I do think, again, there's a beautiful metaphor there. We always want the laundry to be done. Like I still have this mindset that someday it's going to be done and it's never done. As soon as the laundry is done and folded, you wear more clothes and they get dirty. Yes. I never thought of it like that until you described them like, yes, that's it. That it is, it is, it is a cycle of life unto itself. It is, but it's also, it really is like a mindfulness practice. You know, um, I think a lot of times one of the myths, one of the misconceptions of mindfulness is that there's somewhere to get, like once we do X, Y, Z, then we will be, uh, ready to meditate or then we will be okay. Everything will be okay. And the truth is that meditation is not a performance-based activity. And we're never, there's nowhere, there's nowhere to go, right? Like we're not going to get to this state where we no longer need it or we're immune to really crummy days or, or even really hard emotions or hard times. Those are, they're part of life. You, you know, you know, that this is your field. And particularly, you know, I think when people hear positive psychology or they hear mindfulness, I think sometimes there's this misconception of like a good vibes only happy sheen that we're going to, we're going to, you know? (laughs) Yes. Eye roll, like major eye roll. You want me to what? (laughs) It's not reality. And and so it's, it's a little bit like the laundry. Like we, we think we've, we've, we're finished. We think we're complete. And, and here we go. There, there are more dirty socks. And so we just tend to what's in front of us. We tend to reality. Um, we try to have a sense of humor about it, but I, I loved when you referred to laundry as a sport because uh, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> it's yeah. Oh, it's, and it's very soothing for me. I mean, not everybody likes laundry and that's okay. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like sometimes it's soothing. Sometimes it's a chore. And, and similarly, you know, I could, I could go on all day. So forgive me for belaboring the metaphor, but the same with meditation. There are days when you are absorbed in a very peaceful, calming state. And there are times when it's a little bit of a chore and that's okay, right? It's, we're not doing laundry. We joke about being epic athletes at it, but we're not doing it for performance. We're doing it because that's the stuff of life. And to add to that thought that for me, the ultimate experience of mindfulness is the ability to meet life on life's terms. Yes. You know, I like that. Mm -hmm. So we're not bending, we're bending to life, not expecting life to bend to us. Well, we're, we're addressing whatever shows up, right? Because how much harm can we do when we avoid what's real? You know, there's a beautiful uh, teaching by Pema Chodron and she says, never underestimate the power of compassionately recognizing what's really going on. And I think that's the heart of it. I also think that coincidentally, that's the heart of being a good friend. And most of us understand that with other people. We know what it's like to show up for our friends in their times of need, uh, when things are maybe hard, you know, when it's not the glossy sheen of social media and how we want life to look, but how it really unfolds. And somehow with our own minds, with our own lives, that's a little trickier. And so mindfulness gives us this opportunity to befriend ourselves. And from there, we become even better, you know, friends and people, parents, citizens within our families, communities, for the planet. It's really powerful. 
It is. And I want to touch upon the planet aspect of it because it will take the collective consciousness or mindfulness of us yes. to help I mean, heal this planet. Yeah, it's it's real. Uh, the climate crisis is, is here. You know, you and I were, were chatting offline a little bit about droughts in various areas of the country. Yesterday in, in Boston, the skies were smoky and smoggy from wildfires all the way on the West Coast. And we got here to this place of, you know, an irrevocable place where we need to take action because for a long time people were unwilling to face the moment. Yeah. And so I think that's really important is that we will not make progress. We will not uh, be safer or more secure unless we really show up for the moment that we, that we face whatever it is with clear eyes and with the ability to be fully present. You know, it's, it's not that, unfortunately, it's, we can't just put a happy sheen on things. That is not positive psychology. No, that, no. That is not mindfulness. You know, it's, it's how to be present and address what's really going on. So Rebecca Pacheco is going to give us an SOS meditation. Before we do, I want to give the contact information for Rebecca Pacheco. And to learn more about Still Life, the myths and magic of mindful living, please visit www.stilllifebook.com, on Twitter at OMGAL, on Facebook at OMGAL blog, and on Instagram, OMGAL. And now I'm going to turn it over to my guest, the lovely Rebecca Pacheco. Oh, thank you, Lisa. So this is a one minute meditation. You can do it virtually anytime, anywhere. Um, I have done it in, you know, the doctor's office while in the waiting room. I've done it before interviews. I think it really helps to give people a tool that they can use. So wherever listeners are headed next, think about something that you would like to bring forth in your day or in your life, just one word. And treat it kind of like the SATs, like the first word that comes to mind is, is probably the best. It could be calm. It could be clarity, peace, joy. So one word, just let it land. And, and we're going to use that with our little mini meditation. So go ahead and get comfortable. You might be sitting. You might be walking. Just pay attention to your breath in and out a couple times. Deep breath in. And let it go. You have your word. We have our word. And then you'll slowly breathe in, silently counting one. And as you exhale, silently say your word. Inhale, two. Exhale, repeat your word. And then keep going until you get to ten. Do that. <laughs> yeah. And then when you get to 10, you know, if you wanted to do more, you can let the counting fall away and just watch the breath, or you could start again at one. And that can be how you 
begin a formal meditation practice or it can be just how you find a little piece, you know, on the bus to work. <laughs> but that's a little kind of SOS mini meditation that I, I use frequently and, and like to share. So put that in your pocket, everyone. <laughs> it's our party favor today. Yeah, we- our party favor. It's your swag for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and on behalf of my guests, Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh, Dr. Seth Gillahand, and Rebecca Pacheco, wishing you kind words, kinder thoughts, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day, and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.